Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Just wanted to issue a small preface before the episode that this first one is a little rough because we're still a little unstructured and long-winded at points. But we took notes and we will continue to improve. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Home Dance Film Festival, the podcast that brings a little bit of the Sundance Film Festival to you in your home, in your couch. We discuss two movies that premiered at Sundance along with one non-Sundance film, plus a few other things thrown in along the way. Today we will be discussing Tully, Whiplash, and Gattaca. But first, we're going to do a little introduction since this is the first episode. I'm Jessica. And I'm Dylan. And we're married. Aww. <laughs> so I never really had any inclination to start a podcast since I started listening to them about eight years ago. I thought, well, I'll just reap the benefits from everyone else's creativity and have endless podcasts to listen to. But last year, the idea to start one popped into my head and I couldn't let it go. So I asked Dylan if he wanted to join me. And I said, sounds dope. And here we are. We both love Sunda- Sundance. Uh, When I was in high school, it was a bucket list thing for me to attend the festival, and then I finally went in 2018 and again in 2020 with Dylan. Both times were some of the best times I've had in my life. It was everything I hoped it would be and more. Yeah, and I've always been the movie guy in my circle of friends. I've always obsessed over the Oscars, going to the local art house theater, and curating a physical media collection that is frankly ridiculous. But for some strange reason, going to a film festival like Sundance just seemed out of the realm of possibility uh, until my dear Jessica here surprised me with the best Christmas present of my life, uh, a fully planned trip to the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Ever since then, I dream about the festival every single year. So thank you everyone for choosing to listen to this podcast. That's pretty cool of you. And we appreciate it. If you feel so inclined, feel free to leave a rating or review. It helps us out. Thank you. Yes, but please be kind. Uh, (laughs) We're fragile. (laughs) Five stars would be a lot of help, even if you want to give us constructive criticism. But before we get to our main discussion today, I would like us to briefly catch up on a few titles that we've been watching this week. So, Jessica, do you have anything you want to tell me about? So... I rewatched Juno again recently. Okay, topical. Yes, <laughs> that's why I was bringing it up. I thought it would be relevant because it was written by Diablo Cody and directed by Jason Reitman. And I thought it would go along with the theme because it is also about pregnancy and it has J.K. Simmons in it. <laughs> true, true. So there we go. Um, uh, it surprised me because this one did not play at Sundance. Yeah, this seems like tailor-made for the Sundance experience. Yeah, it was at Telluride and TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival. Um, So Gino is a high schooler who gets pregnant at 16, and so the movie is just kind of her journey 
with it and what she decides to do. But um, this was probably the third or fourth time that I had seen it. But I think that it still holds up. I still like it pretty well and it still makes me laugh and it tugs at my heart in the right places. So yes, the dialogue can be a little gimmicky, you know, it's Diablo, Cody. Cutesy. Yeah, so right whenever it's, like, right at the beginning, it's, like, really rapid-fire heavy because you have the whole, like, well-known, um, your ego is prego. This ain't no etching sketch. This is one doodle that can't be undid, home skillet. So that's just, like, thrown at you at the beginning of the movie. But I think that it does just, it tones down as the movie goes on. And then so it's, like, it's in places where it's still kind of disarming and it makes you laugh. So, I mean, I think it works. And people, I think they had a problem with um, her not being, like, a realistic teenager. But I think at the time it was. Like, I think it, I think it was pretty realistic. Now I think it's maybe a little out of style. Like, too wise beyond her years, like... But see, that's kind of the style now, like, with a bunch of... Like, Rory Gilmore type stuff? Yeah, like, with a bunch of teen movies, all of the teens, they seem wise beyond their year, and they're already jaded, like, they're 40-year-olds and stuff, and that's just the style, and it's like it started with this, maybe, but not really, because the 80s, it started in the 80s. Kids have always been jaded. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, so... Now it's more so, like, the dialogue wouldn't... It, the dialogue's out of style, I think, because they don't... I don't think that they talk that way. Yeah, Elliot Page was a perfect Juno, really, and the whole cast is perfect. I really liked Michael Sarah in it. I know he's really fallen, like, away from most mainstream movies, but I've always liked him. I hope he never ends up being problematic. Maybe he already is, I don't know. But, like... <laughs> I I thought he was very good in his like little awkward period in the mm-hmm. or, or in early odds. Yeah, yeah. I'd be interested in watching it again sometime. I know it got a lot of Oscar love at the time and like nominations. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Diablo won for best screenplay. Yeah, because this was her her first movie, so like first written movie. So that's a pretty big launch. Um, I was gonna say about Michael Sarah. I already, what's weird is, like, I already think of him as kind of, um, bad, but not bad, because I, in my head, it stuck the Molly's Game. I knew you were gonna say Molly's Game. <laughs> the Molly's Game character, but he he's not playing himself, he was playing Tobey Maguire, technically, yeah. so they're both kind of, in my head, as being weird, so that's a whole thing, but... As far as I know, Michael Sarah hasn't done anything, so it's just Toby being an asshole. Michael Sarah was just <laughs> so good yeah. in Molly's game that you're like, mm, no, yeah, not that, not that Michael Sarah. It's like uh, Hugh Grant in The Undoing, where now I think of Hugh Grant, and I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I was reading about Diablo some to for prep in preparation for the podcast and. I saw that she recently said after Georgia passed its anti-abortion law that she regrets writing this movie because mm-hmm. now people are saying that it's an anti-choice movie, which I think is super strange because I don't understand how they get to that because it's like this this movie has always been 
involved in controversy because I remember whenever it first came out, it was like news outlets and I guess parents who were afraid were making it out to seem like it was making pregnancy look cool, which it does not at like, all. I want to be like Juno. Yeah. Like it does not at all. It, it still looks really hard and scary mm-hmm. and painful. So it's, it's just weird. And then I, I, I'm pretty sure I remember Diablo going on to Oprah and talking to her about it mm-hmm. and everything. So it was strange times. I don't get this uh, anti-choice because <laughs> Juno has, like every woman, three choices. And she can either have the baby and keep it. She can have the baby and give it up for adoption. Or she can get an abortion. And then she considers all of her options and then makes her choice. So I would say that this is like a good, (laughs) this is very pro-choice movie because she takes everything into account and she does what she wants. No one's forcing her to do anything. Her parents are super supportive of whatever she's going to do because even whenever she talks about planning the abortion and she's going to get it, they're very supportive. Her friends are supportive. There's like one picketer (laughs) out, which is kind of like a joke because it's her classmate where she's, she's like, oh... Hey, do you know? And they're they're just kind of talking normally, and then she's like, "Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go." And then she she walks past her, and then she's like, "Your baby has fingernails," and like that gets under Juno's skin. But I mean, she wouldn't know if the baby had fingernails or not because she doesn't know what stage it's in. But mm-hmm. like Juno is, she's afraid of abortion and everything. You can tell, and I think like that that line just kind of seals the deal in her head. Like it kind of pushes her to that side, like, I don't want to do this. She, no one forces her, though. So I think it's very pro-choice. So who are these people saying that it's problematic? Like, I guess people who are mad because she had the baby and Diablo didn't write her getting an abortion. So it's just people who are pro-choice are mad because it, I, I guess it skews that way in their mind. So I guess just with all this stuff about like the fetal heartbeat thing in Georgia being passed and everything's just kind of getting rehashed. So I guess that's just how they see it now, but I don't see it that way at all. I don't know, but I thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> this was uh, my viewing of Juno, and I still like it quite a bit. And I've watched it at different stages in my life, and it still holds up. So, Dylan, I would like to know, have you watched anything that you would like to tell us about? Yes, I've got two things I would like to discuss real quick. I'll start with the one I'm not as excited about. And by not as excited about, I mean, this wasn't a very good movie I watched. (laughs) So, you know how we recently had the opportunity to watch several films at the virtual South by Southwest Film Festival Mm -hmm. And many of them we caught were products of the pandemic. And some of these films we will probably discuss in future episodes, but they were surprisingly great and brought some level of grace and nuance to our current situation. But I watched a movie called Songbird this week, and it accomplished none of those things. (laughs) It is a Michael Bay produced film. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll just give you a little rundown about what it is. It is set in 2024, where COVID has mutated into COVID-23. 
<laughs> an even deadlier strain of the virus that has killed over 110 million people. Yep. And mm. there's government supervision. Los Angeles has been in strict lockdown this whole time. If you go outside without proper clearance, you'll be shot on sight. And the only people that are able to go free are immune people who just have a natural immunity to the virus. They call them munis. That's like a a cutesy term. And of course, one of these munis is Hot Archie himself, KJ Appa. So, which is interesting because one of the movies that was affected right whenever theaters were shutting down was his I Still Believe movie. So he's just like, gotta take the power back. I need to star in this (laughs) pandemic movie for Michael Bay. I'll show you COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Won't keep a good Archie down. As soon as actual COVID hit, we decided we're going to make a movie about COVID and it's going to be a thriller and we're going to be the first out of there. Just because you're first at something does not make it good. What I appreciated about these other movies that we watched that either directly or indirectly dealt with the pandemic, they were what we needed right now. They were lighthearted. They weren't super dragged down by what we've all been going through. Whereas Songbird, it was intensified. There's a good cast. Archie's always (laughs) doing cartwheels in the street and just being a dude, just living life, not being a guy. Just being a guy. (laughs) Alexandra Daddario, her character made me uncomfortable because she's just a girl trying to get by in the pandemic on a webcam and stuff, but she's being kind of like sexually her not harassed she's basically forced into some kind of like sexual power dynamic with Bradley Whitford's character because he's cheating on his wife or whatever and but it's Michael Bay so it's ultra skeezy but then she develops like a friendship with Paul Walter Hauser's character it's like the worst version of Magnolia you've ever seen (laughs) set during a pandemic but it's very badly done and but what I want to know okay is how many explosions were there? Maybe like one. What? But there's a <laughs> there's shootouts during this pandemic. Okay. There's gunfire, okay. so don't worry. Michael Bay. <laughs> one explosion? I want this clear. He didn't direct it, oh, but wait, he wait, definitely produced. produced it. Yeah. Who directed? Some guy, Adam Mason, I believe. No one of supreme note. No offense to if he's listening mm. to this. Yes, he is yeah. listening, <laughs> for sure. He, he, he's our one of our three listeners. Yes, hello, three listeners. <laughs> my best friend, my mom, and director Adam Mason of Songbird. I'm so glad to have you all here. <laughs> It's such a weird movie because there's, like any Michael Bay production, there's plot holes and just questions about this world that he set up. Just because you could does not mean that you should have. So I wouldn't really recommend Songbird. (laughs) People at the beginning of the pandemic already watched Contagion, so it's not like they need another thing like that. Yeah. It just feels like it missed the boat. It just debuted originally in December and it just came out on Blu-ray, which is how I'm reviewing it. And it already feels dated because they made it over the summer and got it done and released it. It wasn't all bad this week. There is another movie I'd like to talk about. (laughs) It is the, I guess, polar opposite of Songbird. It is a 1931 dark German comedy called The Man in Search of His Murder.
murder. And Jessica, this movie, it delighted me. The main trio of people associated with it are people from the golden age of Hollywood before they were in the, in the golden age of Hollywood, before they got their Hollywood start. So the director is Robert Sidemack, who did The Killers, which is a film noir with Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner. But the writers on this is Kurt Sidemack who did the Wolfman movies, and then Billy Wilder, who's done everything, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Some Like It Hot. So this was before they left Germany. They made this movie. It's a lot of fun. It's about a man who, at the beginning of the movie, you see him just chilling in his apartment. He seems very down on his luck. He's kind of suicidal. But then a burglar comes in to steal from his apartment, obviously, and he threatens the the guy. It's like, hey, no funny business. And the guy's like, please shoot me. And the burglar's like, I don't like what's going on. <laughs> I gotta get out of here. The guy convinces him, hey, I will pay you to kill me. And the burglar, he's reluctant at first, but he's like, all right, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this properly. We're gonna have a contract drawn up. We're gonna make this all legal. So it's just, if anyone's like, hey, you kill that guy? And you're like, yeah, I got all this paperwork. <laughs> that is <isn't> like... <laughs> Jessica, this is a 1931 <laughs> dark German comedy. <laughs> Just shows the police your contract. It's yeah. no problem. I have a contract. They're like, okay, that's that's nice. See you in jail. <laughs> but also, he's getting paid to do it. So yeah. he's getting it's even worse. Fifteen thousand dollars or something. I don't know. However much that is in German money in the thirties. <laughs> But the thing is, the guy's like, okay, I'm not going to do it right now because that'd be really awkward for us. Give me until noon tomorrow and I promise I'll kill you by then. Go out, live your life, have a good final night. I'll kill you then. And the guy's like, I really wish you'd kill me now, but deal because I'm too much of a coward to kill myself. Of course, he goes out that night and he finds a reason to live. Basically, the movie is him trying to find his assassin before before he can kill him. And it's not a silent movie, but it has very much like the physicality of a silent movie. It feels like a Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton type broad physical comedy, but also has really quick, weird, witty dialogue. There's like a recurring gag where the assassin is trying to kill the guy, but he keeps doing it poorly. Things keep going wrong with his plans. One involving dynamite. Basically Wiley Coyote. Yeah, it's basically like a Looney Tunes movie come to life. The thing about this movie, it's only 53 minutes long because four of the nine reels were lost, but somehow it still works as like a proper film. It's really a lot of fun. It's coming out on Kino Classics is putting out a new Blu-ray of it, and it's a pretty solid Blu-ray. You know what the premise reminds me of? What? <laughs> Whenever you're talking about it, it reminds me of On How I Met Your Mother Slaps Giving, <laughs> where Barney doesn't know when Marshall's gonna slap him. Yeah. <laughs> it's a much higher stakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. So, I look forward to hopefully watching that with you someday because it was a fun discovery. That does it for me this week. But Jessica, shall we Sundance? We shall. No, no, no. Do you know what a night nanny is? 
And they take care of the baby at night so mom and dad can get some sleep. I don't want a stranger in my house. It's like a Lifetime movie where the nanny tries to kill the family and the mom survives and she has to walk with a cane at the end. Get over yourself. Mom, what's wrong with your body? So our first movie is Tully, which premiered at Sundance as a secret screening in 2018. And it was released on May 4th later that year. It was written by Diablo Cody and directed by Jason Reitman. So they make a pretty good team. And (laughs) it is about a struggling mother of three who forms an unexpected bond with a night nanny hired to help with her newborn baby. And it stars Charlize Theron, Theron, sorry Charlize, Mackenzie Davis, and Ron Livingston. So Charlize is playing Marlo, who is the mother, and the night nanny is Mackenzie Davis, and her husband is Ron Livingston. And I guess we should mention up top that our reviews will typically be spoiler-free, and we will give you a heads up if it will be anything otherwise. Okay, so whenever we saw this movie in theaters, I was looking forward to it, and I was excited about it, but I was trying not to get too excited because I liked Young Adult, which was Diablo's movie before this. Mm -hmm. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And it also has Charlize in it. So I didn't want to get too excited. But And I really liked Juno. But whenever we saw this movie, I loved it. And I've got to say, I think it's probably one of my favorite performances that Charlize has done. I would agree with that. I love it. She's so good. Mm-hmm. And it's such a good movie. I think I've seen it three times now. And just every time I watch it, it just just hits me right. (laughs) Diablo's writing, she's so good at it. She knows how to make realistic characters. They don't have a shine on them or anything. They're they're gritty and they're broken and flawed, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's realistic because everyone is flawed. So this movie really shows the really dark places of motherhood and pregnancy. I don't think that there has really been a movie that goes so much into postpartum depression. It's pretty dark, but it's very good. And it's it's really heartfelt too. Yeah, I feel this is probably, I mean, I would need to rewatch Young Adult. But I think this is one of Diablo's most mature scripts mm-hmm. and she really has developed. I've personally liked her since Juno mm-hmm. and I didn't find it too cutesy or hipstery language or anything <laughs> like that. I found Tully to be a very incisive movie. It's like motherhood unvarnished Mm -hmm. because it's so hard. I mean, I don't know personally, but everyone knows raising a child is hard and it's particularly hard on the mothers. And it's a very unsparing look at motherhood and what Charlize put into this performance to bring it to life, all the weight she gained and stuff, and how she did basically what a lot of male actors do to, like, earn awards and everything, and people are like, oh my god, they're so brave and stuff, and, like, (laughs) Charlize does it, and, like, people are just like, oh, like, yeah, she... She gained some weight and stuff, but it's just like they kind of overlook the work that she put into bringing this character to life and everything. Yeah, I mean, she did get a Golden Globe nomination, but that's not a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it didn't help that this movie, like, well, help her awards chances that this movie wasn't a financial success, but releasing uh, like a week after it 
Avengers Infinity War did not help things. Yeah. I mean, I personally, it was a very tough Oscar year that year in terms of Best Actress, which it always is. Mm-hmm. And it would have been hard for me to kick out anyone out of the Best Actress lineup. I mean, probably Glenn Close fans would probably kill me if I said, like, kick her out for the wife. But I feel that Charlize should have been more in the conversation for this performance because it was incredible. Like you said, uh, she gained 50 pounds for this role. That's insane. So the the weight gain sent her into a deep depression and it took her a year and a half to lose it. And then she had to film Bombshell after. So that's a, it's a pretty big yeah. 180. At least she had vindication for Bombshell and getting nominated for that. So yeah. Going back more to the movie, because I don't want to, like, I don't want to focus too much on her body, like, you know, just transformation, yeah. weight gain stuff. But I mean, it is an, an important piece because mm-hmm. she really got into character and everything. Her character in the movie, she already has two kids mm-hmm. with one on the way. And one of her kids is atypical. She went into a depression after she had him. And she's kind of dealing with that. And you can tell with this pregnancy, whenever people talk to her about it and everything, she always like forgets that she's pregnant. And she's, they're like, no, you, you know, like, because you, you got, you got the big changes happening soon. And she's like, what? And they like point at her belly and they're like, you know, and she's like, oh, right. Just like the look on her face. She's, she seems so detached. Yeah. She's very drained at the beginning of the movie and just like trying to stay within, stay present. There are like certain little things that just pretty much take everything out of her. Like whenever Jonah, her atypical child, Mm -hmm. they're already late to school and but he has his specific place that he wants to park in the school parking lot but it's already full and he like throws a tantrum Mm -hmm. and you can just see how overwhelmed she is and I think the the way that's edited in the movie is like edited almost like a thriller just because (laughs) it's like something that a lot of mothers have had to deal with it's just something that mainstream movies don't really tackle as much so I think it's interesting how they kind of bring that into the fold and show all of the different types of things that she's dealing with up until like she's about to give birth to this new child yeah whenever his meltdown happens in the car like that build up where like he's kicking on her seat slowly and then whenever they're in the parking lot and he starts he gets upset and you're the way that it's shot like you're in the the car with them and it's really loud and abrasive and overwhelming and so the audience is super overwhelmed with her and then you see the look on her face and it's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. it's it's good but it's 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 tough to see most movies whenever they show pregnancy it's all rainbows and sunshine and or at least it used to be maybe more in recent years people have been like nah we need to pull back the yeah like most of the time before i'd say the past 10 years maybe it's just kind of like it's all happy and rainbows and you you have the kid and you're all excited and in a a love days but whenever she has the kid in this movie they have it kind of down to like a science because they already had the other two but she's so detached with the whole process and she's just kind of waiting for labor to really get going and she's looking at her phone and like sleeping and watching tv and then she has the baby and she is just kind of off in her own world a bit 
to herself on the bed and everyone's like, here's your baby and her husband's holding it and everything and she's just out of it. It's really sad and most of the time postpartum depression is really common but no one talks about it like they should they should talk about it more and this movie i think it shows more like a a realistic look into pregnancy and postpartum stuff because there there's all those moments where the baby is crying and screaming and you haven't had hours and hours days of sleep and you're you're in survival mode and there are the times where you have to walk away from the baby and just go in the other room but because i mean they tell you this like doctors tell you this yeah to prepare the parents yeah. like hey because they don't want anyone to shake the baby mm-hmm. so they have to they have to say put your baby down and you know take a moment mm-hmm. because it's really de-escalate yeah it's really difficult and that that baby scream is is really programmed it's like in the mom to to react it's almost like a painful experience ripping up your insides kind of like you have to do something you can't just let it scream like that me personally working in an OBGYN office i heard a lot of patients come through there who had postpartum depression and they all of them were so sad about it because they thought that they were awful mothers and awful Mm -hmm. people and it's just not the case and they're so afraid of saying it out loud and saying it to anyone they keep it inside and they try to get through it just like marlo does in the movie Mm -hmm. like she doesn't want help she doesn't want to get into it or anything and it's something that people should talk about more because there's so much pressure on women to be like perfect mothers and if you don't do one thing then you're an awful person an awful mother but this is so common and you're not a failure and people just they don't get that they don't understand so i think that's why this movie is really important. Let me ask you this, because not everyone loves this movie as much as we do. And like, I, I was reading some criticism earlier about the postpartum depression and like how it's portrayed within the movie. And I know like a lot of like actual healthcare workers who work in psychologists who work with postpartum depression and even just some reviewers who I guess were armchair mm-hmm. psychologists were criticizing like the depiction. They said that it was like too hidden for anyone to notice or that it was kind of portrayed as like the woman was a problem that needed to be solved rather than depicting it as something that people should have took note of and and that they handle things too whimsically like they made it more of like without going into spoilers a plot twist I could see where they're coming from, but also all the signs of postpartum depression were there from the very beginning because she was still in a depression from Jonah and dealing with this pregnancy because you could tell that she didn't exactly want this baby. She didn't want another one and it kind of just happened. And so she's trying to get through that and she's very obviously depressed. And even at the beginning where she goes to her brother's house and her brother is like, I don't want what happened last time to happen again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's it's sometimes coded and yes, some aspects are whimsical, but that also goes into the whole thing of it tackles postpartum depression, but also tackles like losing yourself within motherhood because women usually, they lose themselves because their mom after. You have to say goodbye to being a kid 
and being irresponsible and your fun life and everything and you're a mom now and that's what you are forever just losing your identity yeah Mm -hmm. and it's that's really tough whenever she was talking about being with her husband and how she's like all day it's it's animal like i i'm covered in baby spit up and i I have a baby breastfeeding and everything and it's just that's what she is is just she's a mom is she's just taking care of this infant and then having to switch over into hey i want to be sexy and stuff yeah a sexual being with her husband yeah but it's weird and she doesn't feel that way but it's just like that's what you are especially at the beginning like you're just this you're a mom and you're not yourself you don't get anything for yourself i'm not a mother and i don't have any interest in being a mother but i've definitely listened to a lot of women talk about their experience and i definitely respect them yeah i think regarding the criticisms maybe people were thinking that the signs were so obvious that these like they're criticizing the characterization of the people around her for not picking up on the signs i think that they did because her husband was worried the whole time but he was he was also going through stuff because he was also depressed and he was very absent well her brother picked up on it and everything because he was worried and he's the one who suggested for her to get this night nanny and then her husband was just kind of like okay this will solve things and it'll be great and i don't have to do anything yeah he's like going through this whole thing too he gets to be absent and she doesn't he gets to go off on work trips and then he comes home and he gets the good parts of it where it's just like where's a smile for daddy there it is and then he just goes off and yeah ron livingston he is the perfect inept doofus dad and you just kind of like want to just make him better just like be a better spouse be a better partner for your wife but he's just upstairs always playing video games probably just waiting for like the night where maybe his wife will just one day be like i guess maybe i'm ready for sex again and he'll just be like awesome yeah yeah he i know he can see what she's going through but he just he's not equipped to deal with it I don't think and he thinks that she's doing okay and she's doing better because with this night nanny that comes in she does seem better to him and she starts kind of being herself again so he he takes that to be like it's fine and he he doesn't have to help or anything and he doesn't have to look beneath the surface I guess he just takes face value yeah let's talk a little bit about Tully the the night nanny nanny that comes in old Mackenzie Davis radiating uh big uh hipster Mary Poppins energy yes yes I was gonna say she's basically a hipster Mary Poppins yeah (laughs) which I think it's cool I like that it has that aspect like it's a twist on Mary Poppins happens mm-hmm. where the mom is more involved in talking to her and getting to know her and they form this relationship and I think it's cool and Mackenzie Davis is perfect I love Mackenzie Davis yeah. looking at her career since then I just want her to have all the good things but she just seems to pick a lot of stuff that's not great like I loved her before on Halt and Catch Fire and like plenty of other like indie movies Black Mirror yeah Black Mirror <laughs> Tully is by far one of her best roles yeah it's probably my favorite so far Mm -hmm. and i think i can see her being like the next kind of uh i hate to be like say mumblecore but you know like mumblecore indie princess darling yeah Yeah. greta was like mumblecore indie darling for a while and i think i can see her kind of 
being in, like the same path. Hopefully she's as talented of a director as Greta Gerwig. <laughs> yeah, she probably is. So I'm looking forward to what she does. I mean, I think she just needs a little bit of time and she'll probably start getting better roles like this one, mm-hmm. making better choices. But her chemistry with Charlie's Theron was great. And just the sense of relief you got from once she set foot in the house, you were just right there with Charlie's and just, okay, everything's fine. Like, Tully's taking care of it. We can feel okay. We can get some sleep and everything will be fine. Uh, I also like the just the humor that Diablo usually inserts into movies. Like, it's usually like a dark-edged humor where like one of her... Marla goes to her brother's house and her sister-in-law is talking about like, oh, look, you're glowing. And she's like, I feel really, I feel like a trash barge. (laughs) And she's like, what? And then she talks about this trash barge that got abandoned and floated along the Hudson River for a while. And they're just like, okay. And it was just, it was so random, but perfect. I really like it. Yeah. And also something that made me laugh, but also just be like, what? Whenever uh, Marla goes to get coffee and she's ordering and she's getting a decaf, I think a latte or something. Oh, yeah. And the woman beside her, who is older, is like, just so you know, a decaf contains trace amounts of caffeine. And she's like, okay. And then she says, just so you know. And then the, the cashier just says, do you still want it? And then Marlo says, yeah. And then the woman beside her rolls her eyes like, Ugh. I can't believe you. It's just like the audacity because it's just, it's a perfect depiction of how society and everyone just feels like they can comment on any woman's pregnancy or what she's doing or anything like her parenting, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, she doesn't know that she she's already had two kids, but still give her a break. Trace amounts of caffeine is fine. You're, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And that's just super ridiculous. It's like the one thing that she just needs to get through the day to give her a slight amount of happiness. And this woman's just like, no, you don't deserve that. Yeah. Like, you're a terrible mother in person. Yeah. Uh, you're a disgrace. <laughs> one thing that I did want to mention that almost was a criticism of the movie. It almost lost me at one point. I won't go into spoilers, but there is a point in the movie that involves Tully and uh, Ron Livingston's character. And I was like, this is a bit too much. This is too much for me. But there are certain revelations later in the movie that made it more palatable. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> whenever we watched this in theater, I was like, no, this this movie just jumped the shark. It came full circle. Yeah. Later, and I was like, okay, this movie didn't go off the rails. Yeah, I felt the same way whenever we first watched it. I was kind of just thinking, uh, what? <laughs> and the only other, this is just a random aside that really made <laughs> me laugh. I think we should uh, popularize the expression, uh, being your own best friend whenever you have your <laughs> hands down your pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great. <laughs> Whenever Jonah's just yeah going to town and just having fun. Yeah. And she, Marlo comes by and she's like, you okay? Just just being your own best friend? <laughs> and and then, he's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's great. Oh, good for you. And how was it? So we try to come up with a rating system for every movie that we watch. And I, for this one, I came up with breast pumps. Okay. So (laughs) I will give this movie four and a half breast pumps out of five. Whoa. (laughs) 
I think I would give Tully four breast pumps out of five. Okay. I quite enjoy it, but translating it to a 10.10 scale, doing a 9 out of 10 uh, seems... I'm not sure if I love it that much, but I do quite enjoy it. Okay. And I do want to mention, at the time of recording, there are no free streaming options for Tully, but there is a great Universal Blu-ray that I would recommend because this movie is quite great. Got Buddy Rich here. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Here we go. Five, six, and... Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will gut you like a pig. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? Our next movie is Whiplash, which premiered at Sundance in 2014 and was released later in October that year. It was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. I hope I said that right. Um, It is a promising young drummer who enrolls at a cutthroat music conservatory where his dreams of greatness are mentored by an instructor who will stop at nothing to realize a student's potential. It stars J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller. And J.K. Simmons is the teacher and Miles Teller is a student. Whiplash is a film that I had not revisited since the Oscar season in which it premiered. Uh, And it's still a knockout. For a film with such a relatively low stakes. It plays more like a thriller than most films that are even classified in that genre. This is such a singular... It's not a debut from Damien because I saw that he had made a film before this, but I love when a filmmaker basically comes out of nowhere and which has happened a lot this Oscar season and just announces himself and just like, hey, here's a great work of art that you're just going to have to reckon with and I'm going to be around in cinema for years to come. <laughs> Here I am. Um, I I really, really like this movie. I, I loved it whenever we first watched it and I still really love it. It's really edge of your seat. Watch like sweaty palms and it has this manic don't stop energy throughout the entire thing you barely get a break you barely get room to breathe but that's what's so great about it i think it's a lot kind of like jazz in that way whenever it's just like everything all at once and everyone's improvising and throwing things out yeah there's a reason reason this one best editing at the academy awards Mm -hmm. because it is so such a tight movie like from beginning to end and just all the scenes that are stitched together so perfectly it's wonderful you can tell that Damien, like you said, really loves jazz because he also did La La Land and that has a lot to do with jazz. Yeah, and then he has The Eddie on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I think that debut film that I was talking about is also about jazz. Mm. So, dude loves jazz. I mean, that's pretty cool. And then he did First Man, so. Yeah, yeah, that was, was like, weird, but I'll take it. Which is, I love, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. We can talk about that a different time. <laughs> <laughs> J.K. Simmons's performance in this movie was super insane. Yeah. It was amazing. And he won. Yeah, he won Best Supporting yeah. Actor. And he won an Oscar and a Golden Globe for his performance. So, well-deserved. Also, I should say, he looks jacked in this movie. He... I think he normally looks pretty jacked. But, I like, know. I think it's that, that tight black tee. Maybe. That really good... That baby tee. Yeah. <laughs> That Simon Cowell baby tee. Oh. But see, in Juno, he did not look ripped like that. But what was he wearing? I mean, like looser. a dad flannel? Yeah. <laughs> but it was. Under that, 
He has a even, tight little bod. Even, like, his <laughs> face and stuff was more, like, chiseled. I don't know. He just looked like a big dude. Like, he yeah. looked very... What's, He's very commanding presence. Yeah. Scary presence. He's yeah. very intimidating. And as well as he should be, because yeah. that's the character. This movie is... It is insane. What you're this... giving me crazy eyes when you're saying <laughs> that. It's like you have PTSD from this movie. <laughs> I do. Because what these what these students go through, and the, the school allows it, no one says anything because everyone is afraid to say anything. Mm-hmm. And then if they do, he will basically obliterate them, their emotional well-being and their physical well-being because he threw a chair at Miles yeah. or Miles Davis. Miles Davis. <laughs> also <That> jazz. <laughs> Miles Davis. <laughs> the, it made me think of um, like what is permissible to do to get great art, you know, mm-hmm. how people are like, you have to push people to a breaking point or art comes from pain. And it's kind of like the women's gymnastic Olympics team. Yeah. How it's like, isn't there a better way to do this? Do you really have to abuse someone to get this kind of art? And that's the approach that J.K. Simmons's character takes. He strictly only abuses his students. Yeah, like he has that line at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie where he's like, I will never apologize for how I tried because he thinks like he's not a bad guy in his mind he's just pushing people towards greatness and if they can't cut it then they were never going to be great in the first place yeah i just think that's a wild mindset and he thinks that all these great jazz players are around because of him and then no i won't say that because it's a spoiler his belief's not exactly disproven by the end of the movie I guess, but it's only because Miles' character is so determined to get back at him, prove him wrong. But he also wants to be the greatest. He does. Like, he even has, like, we haven't even talked about Miles' personal life and and any of the other aspects. He has a relationship or a brief kind of burgeoning relationship with old Supergirl herself, Melissa Benoist. Also in Glee. Yeah. And there comes a point where he chooses to cut ties with her because he thinks it will impact him being great. That scene was so uh, it was uncomfortable because she said what I was thinking. Like, it's... There's misogynistic aspects. Yeah. It's very irritating. Yeah, women are just there to hold hold yeah. men back from greatness. That's why that's why they can't be great, because that's what she's definitely gonna do and she has no other aspirations. Anywho, his dad doesn't think that what he's doing is that great and he obviously isn't very impressed. He whenever they're over at dinner with his dad's friends, I think. I believe so. And his friend his sons were there and they're talking about their football accomplishments and his his dad is super excited and like woo cheering them on at everything thing and really getting into it and then whenever Miles mentions his accomplishments like I'm in this program with this teacher and it's really the best of the best and they're like oh okay that's nice um so boys football boys and they just ignore him that's interesting I never really in both my viewings of Whiplash so far I never really noticed that his dad was not supportive exactly I mean he I think he was more concerned about the abuse that mm-hmm. Miles's character was taking but I don't feel that he didn't care about what he was doing. I think he appreciated what his son was bringing to the table, his accomplishments. 
I think he was proud of him getting into such a hard school to get into, the best music school in the country, but he wanted him to be like a normal, like a lawyer or something, just because it's more stable and he doesn't want him to be a starving artist and end up in a gutter somewhere or whatever. But his face lights up whenever these boys are talking about football and their accomplishments and I think getting scholarships and stuff. It, But it's just like the same thing, like pro athletes, you're not going to make it. You might make it. And he, they're, they're all so excited and jazzed. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> but you want me to slow clap? <laughs> But uh, everyone at the table is super excited, and then whenever Miles says all of his stuff, it, it like sucks the air out of the room, mm-hmm. and it's uncomfortable. And his dad is like, "Yeah, that's great. He's noticeably like contained." Yeah, I just took that as more Miles's character being so like such a burst of unexpected irritation that he was just trying to diffuse the situation. I didn't take that as much that he didn't care about what his son was the content of what I think he just didn't approve of how his son said it. But he didn't really say it. He he didn't seem like he wanted to start an argument at first until people noticeably ignored him and then he started getting combative. And then his dad blew up too and everyone blew up because he was being a jerk. But it seemed like he was embarrassed of Miles's stuff because his friend was like already putting it down like, oh, what are you doing at your little music school and stuff? And then his dad is kind of like taken down a peg and so he just kind of follows his friend's lead. That's I, what I saw. That's not how I interpreted it. I, Whenever I reflect back on Paul Reiser in this movie, I think of him as like a supportive dad who doesn't, who will never understand what the, the drive that Miles' character has towards getting into this program and he thinks it's too over the top. Like if he knew the full extent and when he eventually learns about some of what he has had to go through it will never make sense to him yeah i mean i get that i just think that he he doesn't understand it but he wants him to do something more stable and something that he can be to his friends hey my my kid's this hotshot lawyer or whatever Mm -hmm. so i think there's that element and he doesn't truly see what what drives miles until the end and then he gets it because he sees it but he's i know that he's worried about him the whole time just kind of putting in too much and overworking himself and i don't think he knows the extent of the abuse until you know kind of midway through yeah so then that comes in and he's worried about that but i just think that he's not super excited about miles being a, a drummer i guess so his character being a drummer the whole movie is it seemed like it was just kind of riddled with kids who were abused in some ways even miles's girlfriend whenever she was talking about her parents talking about her and how her mom told her that she had a big chin and no mm-hmm. boys would like that yeah and talking about like what her parents wanted and what she wanted to do all the kids in the program being abused by jk simmons and then miles it seemed like all these kids were trying to live up to all these expectations that they couldn't meet that their parents wanted and their their teachers and everything and even themselves mm-hmm. so there's a lot of abusive relationships in here yeah but miles's character is open to putting aside that abuse because he he believes on one level or another that the jk simmons character is doing what is right even though he hates it yeah i think his uh jk simmons's character puts that idea into his head and if he never would have gotten into that his program like gotten that taste Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have been like that he would have been more even killed i think but it just that toxicity 
it just spread around. It spread through the whole movie. Like everything he touches, it becomes toxic. And so yeah. Miles is consumed with being the best because he he has to prove to him that he is the best. He showed him a little bit and then he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna prove him to him that I am. And then he beats him down and then he just wants to rise up and beat him back. Mm-hmm. So it's like this whole movie of just like tug of war. J.K. Simmons, like you mentioned, the toxicity. He has some very killer lines in here, and just just says some some very awful things. Mm-hmm. I I love the, just the throwaway line whenever he's making all of the like a trio of drummers do a, a single piece over and over and over until like, they get it right. And whenever the rest of the band is like kind of waiting around, and they eventually come back, he's like, "I apologize to all the musicians." Yeah, <laughs> like just putting down the drummers, like. <laughs> Sorry you had to wait on this. Yeah, and he's so sincere about it. Yeah, I apologize to all the musicians. <laughs> it made me cringe so hard whenever, before the Miles Teller character actually gets into the band, J.K. Simmons goes in to see everybody who's performing and see if there's anyone who can join his elite program. Mm-hmm. There's just mm-hmm. the one girl who's in first chair, and he's like, <laughs> let me see if, <laughs> if you are... Basically, if you did stuff to get into first chair or if you're actually talented enough to be in first chair. Yeah, like, are you just cute? Yeah. Like, something to look at? Yeah. Did but, your looks get you there or are you actually talented? And then he's like, what's not talent? Yeah. It's like, oh, Jesus. There's no women in the the program that he has, which obviously he doesn't care about saying awful things to women because he at the beginning there whenever he's just like oh it's it's not talent yeah so i just i don't know if i think it's he he seems the type of person that he just doesn't want to put up with women but he makes these young men cry all the time so i don't know Uh, it's really interesting because he does put on a front at times there's whenever i think it's a student little girl yeah Yeah. and he's like being very sweet to this young child yeah and like maybe you can play for me sometime yeah and whenever you're a big kid yeah and you're just like you're so fake yeah it's like he knows what he's doing is wrong so of course he it's like he has his own personal boundaries i'm not gonna abuse and crush this child so he's just like hey that's awesome are you still playing this whatever instrument Mm -hmm. are you gonna be in my band whenever you're a big kid i hope so high five (laughs) and so he seems so sweet but then he gets immediately into the room and he's like, okay, and calls them like scumbags or whatever. Yeah. He he knows he's very manipulative and he knows what he's doing. And so he knows what masks to put on in certain situations. It's wild. <laughs> JK definitely earned his Oscar yeah. with this role. And he made Miles Teller better by being like opposite of him. This is probably by far my favorite Miles Teller performance. And I wish he would do more things like this because he is really great in this film Mm -hmm. but whenever I look at what he's done since then it just seems like a series of missteps granted I haven't watched everything I know you know how to act just stop going for the paychecks yeah the whole movie has like a very masculine driven energy yeah because it's just these dudes butting heads. There is one thing that bothered me. Whenever Miles's character is playing the drums, mm-hmm. I whenever he's like practicing all crazy at all hours, I'm just wondering why 
in the hell does he not wrap his hands up before he plays or wears gloves with the cutoff fingers or whatever? Yeah. I know the gloves might hinder your movement a bit, but even just, I've seen drummers wrap their hands too, mm-hmm. and you can still move. Mm-hmm. But he, he doesn't wrap them. And then he tries to put Band-Aids on already whenever they're bleeding and have open sores. And I'm just like, that's not going to work because the sweat is going to rub. Everything is going to come off because Band-Aids, even though whenever it's like, I'm stuck on Band-Aids because Band-Aids are stuck on me. They're not stuck on you. <laughs> so they'll just slip right off. And that's what they do. And he just tries to put on all these Band-Aids. And I'm like, bro, get some legit athletic tape. Wrap your hands. Yeah. I do not understand. The only medical... <laughs> attention he needs is plunging his hand into ice water (laughs) just blood yeah that was wild yeah for the rating system for this one uh, i came up with bloody drum skins (laughs) yeah so i personally i find this to be a near masterpiece the year this was nominated for best picture at the oscars birdman won which i have no problem with birdman it's been a while since i've seen it but that year i probably would have chosen either this or the grand budapest hotel honestly so i would probably give this four and a half out of five bloody drum skins it's a good rating i think i remember you rooting for the grand budapest hotel at the time also interestingly that birdman has that crazy jazz score all the way through and long shots good year for jazz yeah i am going to give this film also four and a half bloody drum skins out of five boom because i think it is almost perfection awesome And for those who want to see it again, uh, you can stream this currently on Stars as of this recording, or you can get a very nice looking uh, Sony 4K disc that I would highly recommend both an upgrade in the visual and more importantly, the audio department. So I highly recommend that. In a society where success is determined by science, Divided by the standards of perfection. One man's only chance... How do you expect to pull this off? I don't know exactly. ...is to hide his own identity. This is the last day that you're going to be you and I'm going to be me. ...by borrowing someone else's. Congratulations. What about the interview? That was it. So our final movie is Gattaca, which was released in 1997. It was written and directed by Andrew Nicole. He also wrote The Truman Show, which is pretty cool. It is a movie about a genetically inferior man who assumes the identity of a superior one in order to pursue his lifelong dream of space travel. It stars Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, and Jude Law. Interesting fact, just right off the top. Ooh, coming in hot. Um, this movie actually bombed at the box office and did not make its money back, which was a budget of $36 million. So it's, even its worldwide gross was about $12 million. Yeah. So it gained kind of like its cult following through home video. I'm pretty sure this gained its cult following exclusively through science classrooms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I think pretty much every science teacher I've ever had has shown me the first 45 minutes of Gattaca. I had never heard of it. I was seven years old whenever it came out, but I had never 
heard of it and then the first time I ever saw it was in my seventh grade science class and I loved it. <laughs> I was like, what? And then in high school, another teacher showed it to us, but I don't think we watched the whole thing. But I... You can't watch a full movie in, in class. Well, you know, in pieces, okay. as you do. Because we we totally did in seventh grade. Okay. We finished it because I remember the whole ending and dramatic and... Okay. I'm backing down. You're right. But after that, I started thinking about it again after middle school and wanting to watch it. So I ended up buying it on DVD, I'm pretty sure. But then I don't know where it went. So maybe I didn't. I don't know. But anyways, I <laughs> I love this movie. I think... <laughs> I think it is one of Ethan Hawke's best <laughs> movies and performances, and it's usually one that I <laughs> talk about because people surprisingly don't know Ethan Hawke, which blows my mind. Whenever I talk about him, whenever I'm like, you know, Ethan Hawke, and they are confused, and then I say Gattaca, you know, and they are even more confused because they, blank stare. they have no idea what Gattaca is, <laughs> and that blows my mind. So... I think it's one of his best. Also, Uma is great. And I think it's probably the first time that I ever really noticed her, unless I had seen The Truth About Cats and Dogs at that time. Are you telling me you weren't a four-year-old watching Pulp Fiction? <laughs> I was not. Okay. <laughs> I just want to say, I just don't think that they make these kinds of movies anymore. You did mention that it bombed. <sighs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. This, there's this particular aesthetic and like feeling of this movie that is exclusive to the 90s and the early aughts and it's these really sci-fi dramas like heightened dramas with beautiful scores all through it and mm -hmm. it, it really it grabs your heart and it blows you away and it's like the look of it even is just it looks kind of like a high fashion ad yeah like a a commercial or something. You have like this movie and then you have Bicentennial Man, <laughs> which I love. And then <laughs> we just lost two of our three subscribers. Sorry, two, two of our three subscribers. But yeah, this really like heightened dramatic. It really, it gets to like the core of humanity. They just don't make sci-fi movies like this anymore. And I really miss them. I think the closest that recent movies had com have come would be Interstellar and Arrival and I think The Martian a little bit, Ad Astra. So yeah. these are the kind of sci-fi movies that I love. This is why I love sci-fi. This whole movie is almost like a perfect Ray Bradbury story come to life. It's awesome. I agree. <laughs> First of all, I agree. Oh, no. No, it's just I... I understand. It seems like you're bemoaning the dissolving of the mid-budget adult drama, but yeah, which is just like a hierarchy of the what you're asked. Like you're wanting more. But it has this sci-fi feel, you know. That's this is why I love sci-fi so much because it's so much about being human and. The looking at the flaws of humanity and kind of exaggerating them and mm -hmm. really thinking about them or just what's the worst case scenario that can happen, things like that. Yeah. From a narrative standpoint, I completely agree with you. Just financially, it just seems like studios cannot be bothered because stuff like this and like The Island and even Interstellar wasn't a huge box. It, it made its money back, but... I also love The Island. I will say that. I know. That's why I mentioned it. Yeah. But this is why I love, love Interstellar. And it is my 
favorite Nolan movie because it has all of this. It has like a beautiful score. It looks amazing. And there's love all through it mixed with sci-fi. It is perfection. Chef's kiss. <laughs> let me let me jump in here. To so, uh, You are obviously more of the Gattaca lover than I am, but I do really enjoy this movie. And whenever I think of Gattaca, I think of people generally loving it. So it's a little surprising to me that it wasn't a bigger hit than it was. Then whenever I look at Andrew Nichols' other movies, I see that he hasn't exactly been on fire with things. It seemed like he really hit a stumbling block with his follow-up, which was Simone, which was a movie I saw like the VHS cover of constantly as a child and I was like that looks good but I never rented it because I think I probably wouldn't have been allowed at that time but I've appreciated many things in this dude's career Lord of War is something I remember really enjoying but I haven't revisited in probably 15 years and I know we both really liked In Time I'm not sure I'm not sure if it holds up Gattaca seems like his crowning achievement and the fact that it's not more recognized is pretty wild to me. I don't have quite the emotional resonance with this movie as you do, but I do really appreciate this story. It is one, whenever I've watched this movie, I always enjoy it, but it never moves me like I know that it moves you. But I really appreciate it from an aesthetic level. I think it's very beautiful and the very deliberate production design. The whole world is constructed to be perfection because everyone's striving for perfection. And that that comes through in like every element of the filmmaking because everything has to be pristine within all of the high society proper elements of the story. It looks clean. Yeah. (laughs) The movie itself is really dealing with the burden of that perfection puts on a person and how it's probably just better just to not even try to reach perf. I mean, you should try to reach perfection, but you'll probably have a more enjoyable life if you just accept the flaws that you have within yourself. It's okay to be... You accept mediocrity. Yeah. Because that's what you're going to (laughs) get. What's wrong with mediocrity? (laughs) Look at me! (laughs) But tell me... Tell me some of your key standout elements of Gattaca. Well, one of the elements is the score, which Michael Nyman composed. I guess that's how you say his last name. I'll trust you. Um, he won a Golden Globe for it, Ooh. which is deserved. And it, it makes the movie that much more moving. But the movie is like Darwinism to the extreme because, of course, it's prevalent in nature and everything. The strongest survive. But it doesn't really work as well in human culture because we have medicine. So you can just kind of fix whatever. This movie is one of the most realistic sci-fi movies it's very possible that it could happen Mm -hmm. it's basically people genetically engineering their kids so they take out all of the things that will make them imperfect like the probability of being addicted to alcohol or having mental illness or having heart defects or whatever if you're gonna have anything they can just clip it out and poor vision yeah, yeah poor vision is super rare in that world because it's just, it's gone. So that's one of the things, like, if you wear glasses, people immediately know that you're, as Uma put it in the movie, a godchild. Yeah. 
and you're not genetically engineered because you have myopia. People can tell your vision is imperfect. Yeah, the poor vision, that is actually one of my favorite scenes in the or the, one of the most intense scenes in the movie mm-hmm. whenever he has to ditch his contacts because he's trying not to be discovered to be this imposter and he has to blindly run across <laughs> a, an interstate when it's all blurry and stuff it stressed me out yeah it was very stressful yeah. i like the the cars in the movie were not futuristic looking they were actually like older cars but they put the sound in it that made it sound like the jetsons <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah it was pretty cool because i like that they still have like this style it's like a retro style in the future world mm-hmm so that was fun. But uh, all the performances in it were amazing. And I really love the story. Just Ethan's character, Vincent slash Jerome, mm-hmm. is born with a heart defect. And so his days are numbered and they tell his parents basically that he's going to die at 30. And so he spends his entire life just trying to basically fight his genetic predispositions and overcome them. And so it's really like a movie about the human spirit and just triumphing. So he loves space. He wants to go into space because he doesn't feel like he's a part of this world anymore because he's so other. And all these people who aren't perfect, they're like this other class of Mm -hmm. humans. They're subhuman pretty much. And they're relegated to menial jobs like janitorial work and whatever else, which humans, even in a world of perfection, we still find something to discriminate against because that's just what we do. Yeah. There has to be something. There has to be people to step on. You have to have people who will do these menial jobs and tasks. Mm-hmm. And so the elite people aren't going to be cleaning bathrooms. So they have to keep them down somehow. And it's just, it's insane. Discriminating against your the very DNA that you're made up of. Mm-hmm. It's not even just skin color or sexual orientation or anything anymore. It's it's your cells. It's what, what you are. It's very interesting to me that basically the plot of this movie, the biggest deception that Vincent is carrying out is just he wants to be treated like everyone else. It's not like some grand, oh, he's trying to like infiltrate this for nefarious reasons. It's just, yeah, I I want to have the same opportunities as everyone else and just not be judged just because I'm not perfect. And that's basically the entire movie. And that's why I like sci-fi because Mm -hmm. it it puts all these things in new perspectives. And it's entirely possible that this could happen. I mean, we already genetically engineer things. We can do it. We've done it. Just the, the only thing that's missing is like the space travel because they have like, what did he say? 12 launches a day, which is insane. Yeah. So like the money that they have to have all those launches and everything and the resources to make all the rockets. And then they're going to crazy planets like Saturn because he wants to go to Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. Mm -hmm. So that's his mission that he's trying to get into whenever he's able to infiltrate Gattaca, the, the space launching corporation. Everything that he does to deceive the corporation and everyone is is pretty cool and it's really well done. Just Jude Law plays Jerome, who he is identity he has taken. Yeah. And so he Jude Law spends his time just being like basically this organ donor kind of person. He just gives all his DNA to him, like blood bags and pee and skin and hair and I like stories like that just thinking in different ways and science medical science it's yeah it's very interesting and also 
Jude Law's character is has become kind of an other because he he was perfect yeah, but he an accident caused him he's not perfect anymore which yeah. is why he's willing to give Vincent his identity mm-hmm. whenever Vincent is in Gattaca the one thing that could give away his identity is a murder investigation that's yeah. happening it's interesting that the movie doesn't really the murder investigation itself is not not really like an afterthought would be the wrong term to say but it's not that important it's important that he doesn't get discovered but the actual person who committed the murder is really it's kind of like a non-entity to the whole story it's just there for a roadblock for a hurdle for Vincent to make it more dramatic and compelling because Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to get discovered so it's like the one thing that could throw him off this mission which he's worked so hard for yeah, but whenever the eventual murder is revealed, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, it's like not a huge revelation. Like, I can't believe this is the person who did it. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly obvious from the start, I would say. I mean, I've, I've probably seen this movie maybe five times, but I just, it's kind of obvious at the beginning. All right, Miss Smarty Pants over here knew the murder <laughs> right away. Yes, this movie is extremely well-written. I would say, for sure. Yeah, you know it's well written because it has a line in which Xander Berkeley, who plays Jerome's doctor, admires his hog. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's just nice that just one man could just be like, hey, this is one nice hog. I wish my parents ordered me one like that. Yeah. (laughs) like That's the kind of quality of writing I want to see in a script. Hey, that's... Just a little bit of humor. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Nothing wrong with that. Just dudes lifting each other up. Yeah. It should be less uh, stigma around that. If you happen to <laughs> you be see- around your bro and you see their hog, just be like, bro. Just congratulate them. Be like, That's an awesome hog, dude. Yeah. Bro, you're looking good today. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. One thing I do want to say regarding Jude Law, it blew my mind that this was one of his first big roles because Jude Law seems like a person who's just always been in my life. But the fact that this was one that kind of more so put him on the map in as successful as this movie was, I'm glad this movie came along to give him a bigger platform because I really appreciate Jude Law. And he has a really good performance in this movie. It's a dark performance. Yeah. (laughs) And it also amuses me this this movie came out the same year as Uma Thurman played Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin. So it was a big year for her. Yeah, in 97, this was not on my radar because I was very consumed with Titanic and Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. (laughs) So that's what I was doing in 97. So Well, I was... Also, I did see that Batman with Poison Ivy. I was about to say... Mr. Freeze. I had a Mr. Freeze costume for Halloween and I looked dope. (laughs) I bet. I mean, I was excited about that, but I was hyped on some Titanic and Flubber. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> Your heart will go on. Yeah. So have you come up? Is there anything else you want to say about the movie? I think there was, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> I'm sorry. Me talking about... It was just one thing. Oh, it was... Uh, this movie did play festivals, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't at Sundance, but it was at uh, Toronto and Chicago and Austin. Nice. I have something I wanted to mention. Did you know that there is an unused ending for this movie? I don't think I did. Yeah, it's just kind of like an epilogue tying things together, and it kind of just underlines some of the themes of the movie, but it's kind of like a short thing that says if that type of stuff that was depicted in the movie, like making people perfect and everything, uh, was in actuality, was a thing throughout history, like listing all of the people 
not all the people, but uh, several famous people who wouldn't have been around to do all of the amazing things they've done because of their issues is the wrong word, but like afflictions. They show pictures of like Lincoln and his Marfan syndrome mm-hmm. and Emily Dickinson and her manic depression and Van Gogh and his epilepsy. And it is kind of like saying, hey, these people were really great, even with their flaws and all, basically. Because mm-hmm. I was watching the special features and the producers were seem to really regret not including it because they seem to really appreciate what that would have kind of left the audience with. I can understand why they didn't because it's kind of perfect as is, but mm-hmm. it is a nice epilogue that if you ever, if anyone ever does purchase the disc, just give it a look because it's an interesting epilogue to just kind of be like, hey, people are pretty great without being perfect. Yeah, because we shouldn't, if you make someone that perfect by deleting some things, you delete a lot of their personality. Yeah, like you, that's an another thing with like the suicide thing because he was making a joke it's also people probably don't have great senses of humor mm-hmm. in that movie because it's kind of lost so he might have had it but his his partner didn't really so it didn't really seem like a lot of them had a sense of humor except maybe the uh, lab guy who admired his hog and <laughs> <laughs> and the cop i don't even think he was really doing it for for the lulls yeah that's true was just like we it. just thought it was funny but Jerome Jude Law's character had a dark sense of humor. Yeah. I but mean, he was also different because him not being perfect kind of broke him. Yeah. Most of our humor seemed like most of humor in life is derived from like life's imperfections and stuff. And like, this yeah. didn't go exactly how you thought. Masking pain. Yeah. So what a world without humor. Yeah. It's a shame. So did you have, did you come up with a rating system for this? Because I know I did. Yeah, I did. My rating system is the double helix for DNA. I came up, this is not as clever as yours, but because I like the scene so much, I did lanes of traffic that I would (laughs) cross to watch this movie. Okay. I would cross three and a half lanes of traffic to watch this movie. Whoa. Okay. Sorry, they can't all be five out of five. Okay, well, I haven't given a five out of five I'm yet. just saying. Okay. Don't come at me, bro. Well, I'm going to say, I'm just going to straight up just say this. I'm going to give it five, and I guess it's double helices, maybe helixes, out of five, because I think it's it's great. That's great. Okay. And for anyone who wants to see if they feel like Jessica and thinks this is the best movie since Ever After, then... Uh. <laughs> Uh, I do want to mention that it is currently streaming on Stars, and Sony just released a real choice 4K steelbook yes. that it looks great. It's been restored from the original camera negative, and it looks amazing and sounds amazing, and it's finally getting its due. So I would highly recommend that for people who are 4K capable. Me and, too. It yeah. was my first time seeing it in high def. I had only seen it on dinky little classroom TVs <laughs> and DVDs. It if, was choice. <laughs> if you too have only watched it in chunks in a science classroom with a teacher who's probably probably nursing some kind of hangover from the previous night, then you might want to (laughs) consider purchasing this disc and watching it it in one sitting. The cover's an upgrade, too. The cover looks better. Just saying. But you can also, like I said, stream it on Stars if you want to save some money. (laughs) 
thank you for joining us on our inaugural episode of Home Dance Film Festival. Join us again next week when we will be discussing the Academy Award-nominated Promising Young Woman and Taika Waititi's The Hunt for the Wilder People, plus a wild card that you'll have to wait to hear about. For those who want to prepare at home, Promising Young Woman is currently available on Blu-ray and digital, and Hunt for the Wilder People is available to stream on Netflix and Hulu. So I know that this is this episode's a little bit long, but we're working on things, so it won't always be this long. We we are we just got a little bit long-winded. We are passionate. Yes. We apologize. So if you just stick with us. If you have any thoughts or opinions about the movies we discussed today or movie suggestions, you can write us at homedancepod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter and tweet at us at homedancepod. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dylan Gonzalez 2, that's Dylan with one I in the number two, because apparently Dylan Gonzalez with a hot name. Uh, you can also find me publishing reviews almost daily on geekvibesnation.com. You can head over there to check out some of my reviews from the recently held South by Southwest or numerous Blu-ray and 4K reviews. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jessica Narrates. You can also find me contributing to geekvibenations.com. If you're interested, you can read some of my pieces on women filmmakers and other opinion pieces. <laughs> uh, we are proud to be a part of the Geek Vibes Nation podcasting network. Original music for the show is provided by Andrew Carroll, who can be found at musicbyandrewcarroll.com. That's Carroll with two R's and two L's. Original artwork for the show is provided by Ben Belcher, who can be found at theartofbenbelcher.com. I've been Dylan. And I've been Jessica. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Bye.